Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today and all week long, we're going to be talking about culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Uh, and today we have a fabulous uh, cast to kick off our week of equity impact briefings. Today uh, and, and all week long, we're going to be thinking about ways in which people are infusing equity and fairness and uh, inclusion to build more dynamic companies to answer big social questions and ultimately to push the ball forward. And so uh, we have a really great cast here today. Um, I'll start here with Davian Harris, who is uh, our chief client officer and leads our DEI uh, an equitable futures practice. I'm joined by uh, my own team here. Uh, we just, uh, from, uh, from a future of work client, my co-briefer, Carrera Kernick and Portia Perkins. Always excited to see Portia on the briefing, bringing her all the way down from Connecticut. And joining us live from uh, Colorado and the Colorado State uh, University System, we have uh, Dr. Becky Takeda Tinker, who is our newest advisory board member. Welcome to Sparks and Honey, uh, Dr. Takeda Tinker. Thank you. Yes, we're thrilled to have you here. Uh, Dr. Takeda Tigger is a, uh, an expert on, on making organizations more functional, better skilled, and we're really thrilled to have her on and now be a member of the Sparks and Honey Company. Next time you are going to be sitting right there on one of these couches, okay? We're going to insist. Sounds like a great idea. I love it. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we're going to start with a favorite conversation of ours. Look, it is a topic that I think we focus on a lot here at Sparks and Honey. We have a ton of IP and honestly a lot of expertise in, in this space. And that's going to be uh, equity in, in the workplace. We'll hear a couple more uh, tomorrow and, and Thursday. We're going to hear more about some uh, consumer-facing topics. But today we are thinking about how to build better, more functional organizations. And our big question for the day is how are brands and companies creating spaces where people can find success by taking a real commitment to equity and letting that drive the future of the organization? So we'll start here. I mean, look, this is a well-discussed topic, tens of thousands of signals. Um, I think one thing that we've learned a little bit in our own work is that, um, you know, Q is really good at pulling in global data, right, with everything from the U.S. to Canada to our friends over there in Fiji, who are uh, always a little bit overrepresented on Q, uh, wants to, some uh, insights from Tropical Paradise. But I like the idea, and I think it's worth uh, pointing out that um, oftentimes this equity conversation is, is layered not just by who's having it and, uh, and the themes within it, but also even where uh, it's happening. And our Zeitgeist map, we're having a couple of uh, Wi-Fi issues in the building. Uh, let's see if we can't get our Zeitgeist map to load. There we go. Okay. So unsurprisingly, our first element, our top element of culture here is perceptual diversity. Uh, it is, uh, you know, you can see the definition up here. Uh, it's essentially seeing the world through someone else's shoes and making decisions, whether we're thinking about how to run an organization, design a product or experience, based on that idea that you may see the world differently than I do, and in recognizing that, we get a lot of value. Um, Carrera, what other element of culture here do you feel like is really valuable for us to look into today or to, or to highlight uh, as we go forward? Yeah, I think brand civil servants is is amazing one here. I think people are looking to brands to, to help with a lot of issues they see in society. They're seeing that brands are able to almost move maybe quicker and more swiftly than government, which is an interesting kind of trend we've been seeing um, as far as where consumer trust lies over the past few years. Also interested in modern family. I yeah. want to, I want to, I, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations say, you know, we're like a family and, and we want to consider our employees and our employees employers in a family relationship and I think a lot of employees are like okay 
yeah, let, let's, let's really build that bond, but that requires a two-way street of kind of trust and support. So yeah. I love to see that one popping. Very interesting. Yeah, you know what I also think is on there, just because, again, we've done a bunch of work on this. My guess is that's the, uh, the AI in the queue system picking up some conversation around benefits, right? Mm -hmm. Very hard to talk about equity and fairness in the workplace without talking about new forms of, of, of benefits. And I think that's maybe why we're, you know, you say egg freezing enough and uh, our system will tag it to... To modern family. Well, and Carrera, I love that because especially now, I mean, I know we're going to get into some conversations about abortion and Roe v. Wade, yeah. but the meaning of family and what that means for an organization to, to take you in and to be, you know, treat you as a family has, has taken on different meaning. It's not just about, you know, feeling that sense of rapport and comfort, but actually what are you doing from a benefits standpoint to yeah. take care of me mm -hmm. um, as an individual outside yeah. of work. Yeah, I love that. Okay. We'll, we'll certainly get into that. Yeah. Carrera, do you want to kick us off and tell us us uh, about, uh, I think, a, a really big uh, place for us to start here about um, a lot of people making DEI commitments. Not all of them are, are, are substantial. Tell us about this. Right. Signal. So this is an article from the Harvard Business Review, and they're making this bold statement right out of the gate in the article. They're saying that diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts are not a thing like a program or an office or a title. They can't rest on a single person, initiative, or place, which really gets to the core of this idea that for too many organizations, DEI in, uh, ends up being only a scaffold that does little to bring about actual substantive change. And the scaffolding is additive instead of becoming integral to parts of existing organizational structure. So the article then suggests that going beyond uh, a diversity scoreboard is going to be a crucial approach to the future of DEI in a workplace. They say that the scoreboard is often flawed as it emphasizes a quantification as opposed to a qualitative experience of indi individuals. And this can speak to high attrition, low promotion, and advancement rates. So one of the main questions the article wants to ask is, how are BIPOC people um, uh, being supported in networking, professional development, mentorship, sponsorship, pay, and performance reviews, and how can qualitative experiences be measured? And so the question I have for the panel is, what do you think organizations can do to determine if their DEI in, uh, incentives or initiatives are performative, or if they're actually driving towards greater racial uh, and gender equity, um, and what values need to be employed here? easy one to start in. yeah <laughs> yeah no happy to jump in with this i mean i think what well, one and you alluded to this is is to ask right and that qualitative and really getting to know um how people are feeling and not just you know a survey i mean that's important from a quantitative standpoint but i think really getting to understand what are the nuances i think the other key is also when you introduce programs and think about mentorship and training and other resources a lot of people and and companies are, are thinking about it from an equal standpoint and is there equal access that everybody has as opposed to is it really about equitable access mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. are the people that are historically marginalized feeling that they can access these opportunities or ask you know for that extra resource or the mentor um, in the same way that those who are not historically marginalized, and we often find they don't, right, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because they are afraid to ask or don't know that yeah. those resources exist and having that level of comfort. So it's not just about making sure everybody has the same level of access, but that 
you are actually putting programs and metrics in, in place to, to ensure that everybody ends up accessing mm -hmm. at the same level. I think that's such a great place for us to start. You know, so this is light, right? This is our equity impact week, but you're right. You have to ask those good questions before you can really calibrate like what the solutions are, how do we get that impact? And I really love that idea about making sure that you are like asking yourself those tough questions as, as part of the process to build something meaningful that is actually structural rather than than superficial. Portia, did I cut you off? <laughs> no, I just to add on that, so I think even before you get to a scoreboard, making sure you have the right voices and what are you measuring, right? So is this something that you're just gathering from a company perspective and you think these are the right things to score? Are you listening to all voices at all levels? Because you could be measuring something that, you know, doesn't map back to things that, um, you know, individual um, uh, employees at different levels may want you to, right? So it's like you can measure and it has to be updated over time, but do you even have the right criteria of what you're measuring? And so I think a lot of times what happens is organizations will use one scoreboard <laughs> across different companies and it doesn't work like that, right? You need the input from those individuals too to make sure you know what exactly you're measuring too. So Love that. Um, Dr. You know, CSG Global had been doing uh, virtual work since 2010. And to your point, we used to get uh, all the department members, and they still do, get the department members together to create scorecards. And it's so interesting that the employees themselves were very specific on what was to be measured and how to be measured on, on the various components. So having that really starts with an inclusive experience, and then they're able to participate and really engage in the metrics being measured. So that was a really good point. Um, you know, one thing before we get off this topic that I really want to raise is with all this hybrid work that we're all kind of doing here, there, everywhere, the Gardner survey of about 3,000 managers revealed that 64% of managers and executives believe that in-office employees are higher performance performers than remote employees. And 76% believed in-office uh, workers are more likely to be promoted. And what's really concerning about that is that from the, another research survey is that women and people of color stated that they preferred to work from home compared to white men. So in comparison to those two groups. So the gap will continue to widen if we're not super cognizant of what's going on, how we're measuring and how we're promoting. Yeah. So the data capture is absolutely crucial. I think that's an incredibly important way to frame some of this uh, conversation. And I, I will, we'll see themes reflected of that. So I, I'm thrilled you added that, uh, Becky. Um, well, okay, uh, as necessary as, as this work that we're talking about is, uh, and as much has changed in the past few years in regards to major DEI investments in the workplace, there are threats on the horizon to this progress, right? So Fortune reports here uh, on Florida's new Stop Woke, in all capitals, act, which took effect on uh, July 1st. It could be a huge step back for DEI professionals and a swath of companies uh, in, uh, in the Sunshine State. Quote, we must protect Florida workers against hostile work environment that is created when large corporations force their employees to endure uh, critical race theory-inspired, quote, training and indoctrination, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said in December 2021, statement announcing the legislation. Per the law, it's now, quote, unlawful uh, employment practice to require employees to take part in any activity that, quote, espouses, promotes, advances, inculcates, or compels an individual to believe in eight uh, what they're calling inclusion metrics. It's funny to have this conversation as we were just talking about our own inclusion metrics uh, that are some very uh, candidly poorly defined concepts around race and sex and gender. 
Um, and it's illegal to do that as a condition for employment, membership, certification, licensing, credentialing, or passing an examination or, or training, right? Um, so let's start by noting that this bill is fundamentally a messaging bill designed for the culture wars. I will give them credit for, for writing a bill that feels uh, smack, that feels dead on to get press, right? They're very relevant. Who knows how effective it is? Um, this article does point out that, uh, honestly, this goes contrary to sort of all of the best practices when we think about why we want everyone to participate in this kind of training. And also there are experts who say it's basically unenforceable. It's very hard to assume that, to, to show that you are forcing someone uh, to, to do something unless there's actual retaliatory measures, and I don't think those exist. But it does raise a really interesting question here. We don't necessarily have to discuss what happened to that poor word woke, but it is worthwhile in thinking that, look, we have clients from all over the place, uh, from different parts of the US and even different parts of the world. And, as we try to set context for how we have some of these uh, conversations about identity that may feel more natural here uh, in New York City than they might you know, in, in other parts of the world, I guess, um, I'm curious from the panel what some of these best practices are for having some of those uncomfortable conversations. So you don't end up in a situation like it's going down in Florida where you know, you're having hostile reactions, but instead having productive versions of this, of this conversation. Daviana, I might ask you this. Yeah, no, I think, and, and we've had this conversation a lot. I mean, as we talk about, I mean, and, and from an equitable futures perspective, even when we're not doing work around D&I with clients, yeah. it's, you know, how do we have or start those conversations in terms of if you're thinking about the future of retail, how do we ensure that we're taking that lens and that approach, um, even if that's not in the client's mind to begin with? So I think going back to to the, the prior uh, discussion, just in terms of asking and having that open conversation to sort of level set and understand the guardrails and sort of where the organization is yeah. currently um, and sort of, you know, in some cases in, it stays very personal, right, where leaders might have those intentions and they talk about it in closed doors, but it hasn't been brought forth at an organizational level. And so that's important context to have as a starting point, whereas with other organizations, it's very common for everybody to talk yeah. about issues and share more widely and publicly. So I think it's important just to really be honest and understand yeah. you know, where you are as an organization, where your leadership stands, not just, again, from you know their own personal views, but in terms of how that dialogue is expressed and how people feel uh, in terms of expressing themselves. Yeah. And then what are those specific paths forward? What are the objectives? Because to your point, it's not all one-to-one -one, or it's not all equal as you think about where an organization is today and where they intend to go or where they can go uh, three months from now, six months from now. So having those very specific and tangible metrics then yeah. is really important so that it doesn't just become this sort of lofty um, goal that right. people have. And I think it's important for organizations like ours who think very seriously about this to also re recognize that we can't put all of the onus on the client to change. We have to show up correct in a certain way. Yep. I don't think we have to compromise our values, but I do think it's part of our own empathy journey to come in and be like, you know, some of these organizations are full of really smart people with really good positive, affirmative goals who may be two, three years behind us in the way they talk about this, or may have never even broached the subject. And it's our duty not to come and, you know, tut-tut them for saying they've never, you know, that, that your pronouns aren't in everyone's email signature, but it is our duty to come in and say, how do we figure out where you're at and shift you where you need to go in a way that is driven by that empathy? Right.
All right, let's stick with one more signal here, because as you can tell, none of this happens in a vacuum, right? And efforts to make workplaces more dynamic um, require an understanding of the news, cultural context, even legal frameworks. And Davion mentioned this earlier, but this piece from the New York Times came, right af came out right after the leak of the draft uh, Dobbs decision, uh, where the Supreme Court would later overturn uh, Roe versus Wade and women's you know, full autonomy over their reproductive choice. So this, as the headline suggests, uh, has some real implications on companies uh, trying to bring in the best talent and create the most equitable workspace. So I have an interesting quote from the article that I, I thought I'd read if, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me here for a minute. Um, quote, we want to be able to recruit and retain employees wherever they may be living, Yelp, uh, the, the, the CEO of Yelp uh, previously told uh, New York Times Dealbook. Uh, but that search for talent is complicated. Restrictive abortion laws uh, have, uh, have the biggest effect on low-wage workers who cannot as easily afford to travel out of state to get uh, reproductive care. Uh, and uh, many of their employers, such as Walmart or Kroger, are headquartered in these states that, have really restrictive, uh, that are adding really restrictive laws. Quote, if they're facing enough of a labor shortage and they think uh, it'll matter in terms of hiring people at the rate they want, said Amanda Shanner, the assistant uh, professor of constitutional law at the Wharton School, they may do something. So what this article kind of gets at is that abortion itself, while it's a huge issue, speaks to the fact that companies need to really start a lot in a, in a world where there is a big old culture war going on. It's not just enough to look internally at your organization. Companies need to start aligning themselves to where some of those legal uh, winds are blowing, where some of the cultural winds are blowing, and understand that, uh, that there are social issues that inherently become business issues. And I, I'm curious your take on that, if you feel like it's, it's that one-to-one, -one, if, if it's that simple. Uh, Portia, maybe I'll ask you to, to kick us off. Yeah, um, just trying to think through it a little bit. But yeah. I think that... Um, it is table stakes. I don't think it's an option. So I think yeah. when I hear a lot of these things being an option to me, it's just an imperative. Mm -hmm. um, I think that with all the issues going on, um, it's going to be w way more important. I think we mentioned benefits and things like that where, you know, people are looking less for, like, salary compensation and more, like, mental health benefits, right? So I think that's caused by a lot of the sociological issues, a lot yeah. of cultural issues. So I think it's going to obviously affect every thread of a company. Mm -hmm. um, so my just holistic view is just, like, I think it's essential and it's more of a mandatory, a mandate versus a nice to have for employees. So. I, I agree. And, I, and yeah. I think that's why we see trends like more moral imperative and perceptual diversity, sure. right? Because people are now making that decision for themselves if they don't see that company aligns with that. So yeah, uh, Becky is um, is a company that addresses big news issues like this going to be more uh, dynamic and, and quicker to move than ones that don't even big sticky yeah. issues. Yeah, agility. We are more global, increasingly more political, more adversarial. So having the leadership and the organizations be built for agility and um, being able to adapt and open to innovation and innovative thinking is really going to be crucial because as we look to address the whole individual, right, that is what's gonna be needed for retention and care employees and organizations that if they are looking at the entire individual at every level, You've got to have a lot more uh, offerings and more to take into consideration. But if you're including employees in those concepts uh, and discussions at all levels, you're going to be able to pull in that information. But the organization has to be open to hearing new ideas and experimenting and piloting. It's funny, it'd be very weird to start a new job and not hear some of their COVID policies, right? You would sort of, if you were to accept a new position somewhere and they didn't say anything about in the office or safety or vaccines, you would sort of question like, 
okay, what's up with this organization? I, I think increasingly we're going to think about abortion access and climate change and social justice as being some of those things that we you may want to hear that you may expect to hear about. Uh, as, as you join these like sort of dynamic organizations. Mm -hmm. Well, and we're at this inflection point, right? Because, you know, CSR, if that was 15, 20 years ago when yeah. that was bubbling up and having some sort of program on the side, and then it became much more about being purpose-driven and really, you know, focusing on how your organization behaves and communication of that. And now it's coming together with the policies, right? And how it impacts yeah. employees on a daily basis. And so when we talk about Abortion, for instance, I mean, many companies coming out with their policies around um, allowing time off or reimbursement as, as women need to travel out of state, et cetera. Um, but that also needs to be, you know, countered with a very vocal, yeah. um, right, you know, proclamation around the issues and why it's important and being outspoken and then making sure that carries down into how those policies can be enacted, right, and making sure that people feel supported and going back to that conversation that they can exercise those rights. Yeah. Um, so it's it's all very holistic as exactly. we think about the this new ecosystem we're in. Well, I'm sitting here at, at very, so first of all, I'd recommend anyone interested in this, uh, maybe we can drop this in the chat. We did a briefing on the new purpose for purpose uh, that highlights all of this conversation. But I mean, I'm thinking about the people who are going to start, you know, if you made me use PTO days, uh, if there was like a wildfire or a flood, I would be a very annoyed uh, employee. So it goes beyond abortion to all these other issues. And just real quick on that, I was going to say that it also comes down to trust as far as how companies and employers um, you know, facilitate these conversations, especially around abortion, which is very sensitive, right? Because, um, you know, when it comes to equity or feeling comfortable with your company and your manager and having to explain that or just looking at the ways that people will go around um, using that policy is also interesting to me because it's beyond just providing, um, you know, policies where you can travel across state lines for an abortion, but what are those conversations? Who do, I, who do I need to tell? Because that's very intrusive, and I think that's the next level of the conversation is how do you facilitate those conversations? Is there, is there someone in your company that can specifically train on having those conversations and helping and providing that advice as well. So it has to go a little deeper. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And Portia, I know we're, we're moving on, but <laughs> no, but I, I love what you brought up there and goes, goes back to your other point about the voices in the room, because if you don't have that diversity in, in the room from the very top and you just have these blanket policies even, then, you know, the people that need to access um, these services and rights and benefits, you know, get left out of the equation and you're not thinking about the full picture so yeah so uh i think we've set up uh the value of investing in this uh in thinking better about dei and some of the challenges that are facing it but this is an impact week so we wanted to look at a bunch of signals uh, about the ways in which companies are making very specific decisions uh that will help increase the dynamism the inclusivity and their equity at work so uh Carrera, tell us about uh what we do after uh june ends yeah, absolutely. So so for this article, we're looking at how companies everywhere are seeking to build a better experience for their people. They want to foster loyalty. They want to kind of curb turnover and drive better engagement. But I think there's this emerging employee expectation that when it comes to an LGBTQ plus Pride Month or Black History Month or um, AAPI Month, that they don't, they're not just limited to the month itself. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that a lot of employers are expecting that these commitments be um, 
carried out all year round. And we see that in, in a, a number of articles popping. So my question for the panel is, you know, I think we can expect that people will want to see year-round commitments, not just monthly commitments, um, to everything from disability inclusion to by POC um, equity outside of these months. Um, have you seen any best-in-class examples of companies doing this, these full-year commitments? Or maybe just even as a strategist, what would you recommend uh, or want to see happen? Well, that's why I loved that folks signal that we highlighted a couple of briefings back about this. It's like a supplemental healthcare insurance uh, company that uh, specifically builds out services for people in the in the like queer and trans community, right? Especially in the trans community where there are you know part of that comes with you know making some uh, some medical decisions in addition to some social ones, and uh, it's just an interesting uh, you know they they now have it used to be a standalone option. Now organizations can buy it, and to me that's an interesting way of thing about our modern family signal about like not just putting up rainbow flags or whatever in the month of June, but also recognizing that like, hey, we're not just talking about this, you have the right to access it. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting model to me because it, it takes the very, it takes these sometimes nebulous desires of equity and inclusion and gives it like a really good structural format. I mean, I don't know how good the insurance is itself. I'm sure it's fine. You know, I'm sure it's great. I hope it's great. Um, but it is a really interesting way of making those values feel like super tangible. And I think it, and this reminds me of um, the briefing where we unpacked um, at the end of Pride and specifically around uh, trans rights and uh, came out of that or a conversation in terms of, of, of trans individuals getting left out often of the LGBTQ plus conversations and where brands are either talking about these issues during Pride Month or even extensions of that or where they're actually putting into practice or, or making policies, et cetera. And it comes back to, A, are you really understanding the issues and the needs mm -hmm. of the various communities and not just treating, you know, LGBTQ plus, but also other groups, yeah. right, as, you know, a monolith, um, and really going deep into, I mean, in the, the folks' example, I mean, you're getting into a specific need, right, as opposed to just, you know, waving the flag or trying to, to put something on social media. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also, I mean, it's a tangible action, but making sure that you're also asking those questions and right. going deep into the issues that individual groups need yeah. um, that you're trying to address ultimately. I think that goes to what you were just saying earlier. I mean, I'm not sure every trans employee would feel comfortable with their boss asking them if they feel like their health care needs are, are being supported, but you'd want to build an organization where a trans employee might feel comfortable saying, hey, well, to the HR representative, like, hey, we're not, we don't get access to this stuff. How do we mm -hmm. fix that, mm -hmm. that problem? Mm -hmm. So that goes back to that sense of trust. Um, okay, we're actually going to do a whole briefing about this in a couple weeks, and I'm very excited about it because it's a really interesting topic. But um, let's talk about work uh, and training for the formerly incarcerated. So this article from Fast Company uh, profiles Jess Bonanno, who's lived an interesting life. Today, she works as a coder for Slack, uh, the blue chip, very popular instant messaging service. But just a few years ago, she was working for several decades as a house painter in her 20s. Uh, she was actually incarcerated for a year. Uh, when she was released, uh, she found that job working in, in maintenance. And um, for years, she said that basically she felt mistreated by bosses and really just had a sense that there was no other space to grow. I mean, once you check that box saying you've been incarcerated, it's, it's very hard to find uh, you know, places to grow your career. Um, that said, after listening to an ad for a free coding camp on her favorite podcast, Banano joined the next chapter, a, quote, nonprofit incubated at Slack that trains formerly incarcerated people in terms of uh, getting them tech careers. 
So uh, they're offered coding classes and then apprenticeships uh, that have been extended into full-time jobs for companies, not only Slack, but that go out to Dropbox, Square, and Zoom as well. Um, so the article notes that I think this is really important that the like learn to code cliche can be really, really frustrating, right? We, we look at dispossessed towns in Appalachia and tell them that they should all learn to code. Well, obviously the issue here is that learning to code and getting a high paying job in, in tech, there, there needs to be a, a funnel between there. And it really seems like what Slack is doing here and what the impact is, is not just saying, hey, here's some, here's a little bit of corporate cash to go learn how to code, but also offering those apprenticeships and also helping to understand that training these people, they may end up at Dropbox, but I can't imagine they'll ever forget what Slack did for them, and maybe they're the next generation of, of employees. So I'm really thrilled that we have uh, uh, Dr. Takeda Tegger on right here, because I know this is a really important subject for you about reskilling and exskilling and making more people uh, more competitive. So I'm curious, just from your, from your expert perspective, what is Slack doing right here? And what might Slack also maybe want to grow, or what could other organizations learn from it? Great appreciation for the work that they're doing in the formula. A free low cost training for second chances, third or fourth, whatever it takes to get our previously incarcerated integrated into the workforce. At this point, new Americans, those with disabilities, LGBTQ, we need everyone who can work to do so. I mean, we're at full employment and we still have help wanted everywhere. So what we're doing in organizations in Colorado and really across the nation and what we're seeing are training programs with holistic support for those previously incarcerated. And the apprenticeship model is really a good one because it helps them have a mentor, a close contact, a person dedicated to helping them with understanding what's going on, understanding how to apply the work that they're learning, and importantly, helping them with the, with the emotional support um, with new job seekers and workforce center clients, and even with previously incarcerated that I've talked to. It's that fear and doubt and hesitancy. I mean, even those with degrees thinking about trying to switch careers, you know, are they good enough? Can they do the work? And to have a champion uh, in an apprenticeship model or two or three people around you that can boost your confidence and positive attitude, which we know are really important parts of job success. So I love what they're doing there. Um, what I'm also seeing, a company I just met with is called Free World. They provide, because so, not everybody's a, a good programmer, um, they provide CDL, the Commercial Driver's License Program, so that you can, so that those that were previously incarcerated can be a truck driver, and we have a huge shortage in our nation of those. They also help with primary living matters, such as finding housing, transportation, to getting to and from their jobs, securing documents, such as birth certificates, social security, ID cards, that kind of thing, uh, which really helps people integrate back into the community. They also help with job placement. They help repair credit scores, big deal, you know, if you're going to get an apartment and they plan help them plan for life trans transitions so they know what to expect and really importantly, build wealth for financial coaching. They um, also are teaching responsibility and community service through their pay it forward program where the previously incarcerated who are now gainfully employed provide a small percentage to help provide support for the next and newly released people behind them. So less than 1% of their graduates have gone back to prison compared to the about 68% of all that who have been previously incarcerated or rearrested within three years. So just as we do with first-generation college students, students of colors with disability or those with disabilities, 
Providing holistic support just beyond the training and learning for job readiness, we can really positively impact longitudinal success of that population. So I am all about what they're doing and what others around our nation are finally doing as we look to try to get everyone back to work. Work is so important for self-esteem and satisfaction in life. Uh, Thank I, you. I, I was going to say, fabulously said. <laughs> I, 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 you almost said it all. I'm curious if anybody in the audience wants to weigh in uh, on anything they heard there that seemed specifically impactful. Um, I was just going to say one quick point, which yeah. is I think this just shows brands and companies also that you don't have to know it all. You don't have to create something internally, right? You can partner with companies that are already doing doing all this work, that are on the forefront, right? So it's, there's really no excuse. We're not asking you to build it from the ground up. We're asking you to just find the right partners, find the right experts that can help you with these. And I think um, you made a really great point around the fact that th these companies that are on the forefront have holistic services, right? It's not just like, here's a job. They actually help with housing. A lot of that is interconnected, so it's it's not about just getting a job, right? If I don't have a house, if I don't have a phone. So I love the fact that they, uh, you know, offer additional resources too. And it's funny because it almost speaks to what we were talking about in the bet broader benefits conversation. Mm -hmm. The idea that like to build really sustainable, impactful, like uh, inclusion strategies requires you to consider the whole person. You right. know, it's right. not just about, exactly. it's not just about the pride month work. It's not just about updating your mm -hmm. website. It's about asking some of those much, much bigger questions. Well, and mental health as well, which is something we, you know, have alluded to in all of this, but I mean, that's another piece of it. As, mm -hmm. you know, we think yeah. about the, the physical benefits and other things that people are going through, but how mental health plays into it and the support needed. Yeah. yeah. And protection, because I think a lot of times we see yeah. in specific roles like this where people are taken advantage of totally. um, because they're, they're cool, lucky to have a job. So I think also making sure that we protect them and that they're also receiving equity, just like another member of the, of the team, um, um, versus kind of how they came in, so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk about a brand that I have spent a solid chunk of my life on, uh, Amtrak. <laughs> yeah, Amtrak has received the highest score possible in the 2022 Disability Equality Index, also called DEI, is the scoring uh, mechanism that we're talking about here. Uh, and it measures the tangible actions companies take to achieve disability inclusion and equity uh, in the workplace. So scored out of 100, the DEI score represents the most robust disability inclusion assessment tool with 100, uh, so 415 corporations utilizing this tool to benchmark their disability inclusion efforts. So DEI is a joint initiative with the American Association of People with Disabilities, and they have ranked Amtrak highly across criteria, criteria such as culture and leadership, uh, enterprise-wide wide access, uh, employment practices such as benefits, recruitment, and, uh, education, retention, advancement, and accommodation. So I've got a question for the panel. What do you think of this new DEI tool? Do you think that there are any downfalls or pitfalls that we might want to be careful about? Or do we think it's just a positive system that's helping people um, kind of score if they're doing the right, uh, taking the right actions um, as far as uh, disability inclusion? Carrera, I'm curious if you want to carefully talk about some of the work that we just did uh, with disabilities and sort of that feedback loop. That we, that we talked about and where this DEI metric might fit in that. Yeah, absolutely. We were, we were working with a client kind of understanding how 
cultural change happens in a DEI uh, landscape and kind of how it always starts from the community, especially when we think about disability activists. They're advocating for their needs. They're saying, we need accessibility ramps. We need special uh, monitors that help us um, you know, do our work uh, at a level that we need. Um, and then from there, we kind of see, uh, what was the next step? <laughs> uh, it's sort of like it grows into like a bigger cultural conversation. Oh, right. It gets, right? it gets cultural awareness. We see people outside of the community understanding maybe the bridge there, we could understand it as like maybe a TikTok goes viral or... Um, uh, an angry tweet at Amtrak. An angry uh, tweet at Amtrak. We see this cultural recognition. It becomes this movement that is unignorable. And that's when we start to have the camel's back break, the watershed moment where uh, we see tactical applications uh, kind of happen. Uh, we see uh, widespread disability policies. We see uh, government legislation about needing every um, restaurant to be accessible in, in the city. Um, but then it, it comes back around and we see the, the disability community kind of um, say, that's awesome. Thank you so much. But this is how you can do better here, here, and here. Uh, and I think when we framed it as a circle, it became kind of this acknowledgement that it's not, it's a, it's continually, um, there's no end point. Yeah. It's, it's always a discussion that, that will move forward uh, in kind of perpetuity. And, and don't be discouraged as an organization if there's always kind of add-ons because that's just the nature of how it will be. You know what's funny about that is that with this, this uh, disability equity index is a score out of 100. What if you built that index and had no maximum score? I mean, you yeah. lose a little bit, but if you said like, yeah, 100 is as, as, as good as, as most people can do, but like we want to see people over 100 and... 110, 120, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you get almost more of a thermometer than like uh, a percentage. I don't know, I, I, feel, I feel like that's valuable here because that's how companies like Amtrak grow into these representative and functional organizations. People hold them accountable, small groups hold them accountable, culture at large holds them accountable, and then they finally hold themselves accountable. Well, and to your question, Carrera, I mean, I, I think that's the, the harm, right? I mean, it's, it's great that they are doing so much, but obviously we don't have the breakdown to see exactly what, what they're doing. But I think it's, you know, do they take that and say, oh, we, we did it. We're, we're just going to coast now because yeah. we got the highest possible score versus seeing it as that journey or continuum where they can continually improve and, and figure out how they, they do better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Aaron? Yeah, I'm thinking uh, we had a... When we were doing our South by Southwest panel like two years ago, we were talking about how data is always going to be the start of the conversation. It can't mm -hmm. be the end. So once you have that, talking about the feedback loops you're ringing up, it's good that companies are pursuing some sort of rigid you know, met metrics, even if that is limiting. But once you get that information, then you can make even better decisions and yeah. Yeah. have more access with that data. So. I think even internally at Sparks and Honey, we've had that moment where we asked ourselves, how do we hold ourselves more accountable by giving really hard quant and qual data? And that really made us, I think that really changed the processes here. So it's, it works. Yeah. Um, and then just really quickly on Aaron's point, when I first saw it, I thought, this is great, but because for employees, it can be seen as a PR move, right? To your point, if there's nothing beyond that. And I think um, part of the issue too is that, um, I'm losing my train of thought, but, um, oh, I think when we do this too, it's, um, I definitely lost my train of thought. Wait a minute, because I was I was going to say it before you, Aaron. Um, I'll come back to it if I remember. Okay. I, I forgot, but. 
Um, let's move on. I, I think this is so cool. We don't get enough signals about indigenous communities here. Obviously, they are about as marginalized as any group uh, can be on this planet. So tell us what's going on uh, in Australia for indigenous job seekers. Yeah, this signal is a partnership between the Wallahi Foundation and the Aloka Foundation, and it will help improve the employability of indigenous job seekers through developing skills and work readiness. The program will be delivered by indigenous employment mentors who take a culturally appropriate approach to breaking down the barriers to employment and provide individualized mentoring support. So for example, they're offering this work uh, fit for work, these work, uh, fit for work sessions that will incorporate presentations from potential employers, complementary services like uh, mental health and physical wellness, um, along with mock interviews, budgeting sessions, promotion, and the promotion of healthy lifestyle choices. So some of that holistic mentorship that we were talking about before, which is really interesting. So my question for everyone is, what do you think signals like these tell us about maybe a future work pipeline or a future employee acquisition pipeline? And future ex expectations around all of that. Hmm. Um, well, Portia, let's start with you. I'm curious your, if you wanted to finish your thought earlier and maybe give your thoughts on, on this. Yes, I remember my thought from before. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is when it comes to a lot of the um, diversity um, scoring and you know trying to keep track of everything, I think I read a lot of reports. I don't know if Davian knows. I know, I know it's like about 76% of like companies say they're doing a great job with DNI, and then um, there's like 22% of employees who say they are. So um, when I saw the last when I saw the last signal that reminded me of that is like yes, it's great, but do employees feel that and see that? So that was what I was uh, thinking before. Mm -hmm. um, and on this point, um, yeah, I think. I think that what this reminded me of is the fact that when you do have programs um, and different resources internally, that it's important that sometimes you know diverse um, groups of people want to see people that they feel are going through what they're going through or have expertise in that. So I think it's important if it's a mental health issue or LGBTQ issue that it's someone who maybe is not exactly the same as them, but someone that they feel like has that background, that experience um, to help them through, I think, some of these um, processes. And I think that's what a lot of these programs are doing right. Yeah. They're bringing in people who look like me or have been through the same things as me and really understand that so yeah uh becky what, what are, what's your take on on this particular technology yeah pairing them with a dedicated person is is absolutely key because that person can see those trends if there is a mental health issue or a struggle that you have that person that is kind of on the outside to look in and say how about we get you some support here or there I love what they're doing. It is really looking at the whole person. So we go back to what you were sharing before, which is whole, whole person support across all populations and nationalities and types. And that, to have a champion is so valuable. It's priceless, really. So I, I love what they're doing out there. And, and what I really think about in the data, however, is longitudinal. Are, are they earning as much? Are they getting promoted? Uh, what, what does that data look like? And unfortunately, you got to start somewhere. And so we'll see in a couple of years what it really looks like for all these organizations, even those that are rated really high today for their work in DEI. It's such a, if I'm going to get technical here for a second, there, there's such a disconnect. I mean, Australia, Canada, the US, Russia, these are places where like there are incredibly high paying jobs in extractive services mm. that are in indigenous communities and none of those jobs go to the, the local indigenous people. And mm -hmm. so it's very valuable to see Australia start that, but you are totally right. Uh, Becky, I mean, if, if you know, uh, we'd want to see, we want to make sure that we see more indigenous faces uh, at the Alcoa mine somewhere in, in West 
uh, Australia because those are jobs that pay incredibly well. And if you don't see that, then uh, you know the, these small steps are, are are just that they're they're a little too small. Yeah, yeah, no, from the so, um, so I used to live in Australia actually, and I've lived there for almost a year, and I've been back about four or five times. Um, so this program I know came from another program in Australia mm -hmm. that actually started with the college that I went to there. Oh, cool. And the reason why it's even revamped to be what it is before is because in Australia, the number one issue with getting indigenous people, like it says like driver license and stuff, is that indigenous people are not considered Australian. Mm. So they're still not considered Australian in most of Australia because a lot of indigenous people live in don't live in a city. Right. So Australia counts Australians as people who are actively willing to come and work in cities. So if you live in an outback and you have a farm and you're white, you can be considered Australian because your farm would be food that went to the cities. Yeah. But if you're indigenous, you're actually not farming. And most indigenous people don't want to farm because that's their lifestyle isn't about is making as much food as possible. Sure. It's, that's not what they're doing. So when they started the first program, they sent all these people out to rural areas and said, we'll give you vouchers to move to the city, and if you agree, we then will train you. Mm -hmm. But if you move to the city and you couldn't keep up your rent because they didn't train you and it wasn't paid, well, they now were homeless. Yeah. So they had a huge homeless issue around the school that I went to, mm -hmm. and there were all people who were actually in that program. Hmm. So uh, I think about 50% of indigenous people fell into homelessness, and about 80% of those were mothers, hmm. because who was staying home with the kids? And Australia has health care, you know, like not how American, but right, universal. you don't get health care if you're not a citizen. Hmm. So you can't, if your kids get sick, what are you doing? You're home, yeah. you don't have all these, and Australia, it is, it is a very laid back place, you know, the people do what they want, but the program actually changed because it was an upward past few years of, we don't want to talk to you, no. do not no longer come to me, I need someone else who looks like me to come to me and say this is now changed, so they revamped the program to be this now, and um, from what I've seen and what people told me, it's actually not working as well. Mm. And it's because typically you're hiring people who don't look like you, but act in the way that you're acting. So if your mindset is living in the city is important, make as much money as possible. Yeah. And that's not the mindset. The people have indigenous people who still say that to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It actually doesn't work. So yeah. it's not working as well as people think it is. And they're saying mm. it's because they can't drive. And they're going, give a citizenship, go drive. Yeah. Right. Um, look, I mean, I think it's an incredibly. Thank, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I, we we love when people bring their own, you know, their own experience uh, uh, in a completely in, a, in, a, in another hemisphere, and I love I, I love that. I mean, I candidly have not. We've seen. I don't know if I've ever seen an ask at Sparks and Honey about indigenous cultures. We get broad spectrum, you know, sort of questions mm -hmm. about non-white communities. I just don't know if I've ever seen a specific one, and so. Uh, you know, this signal works in some ways because we're finally addressing it, but you're, you're totally right in what you're saying. It's, that is only the first step. We need yeah. to really reconceptualize. It's like, about the circle. Yeah, exactly. It's about the tactical change, and then the community saying, that wasn't enough. 
Yeah. Like, this is not over. We need it better. And then trying again and then saying, no, still better. Yeah. Um, and being committed to always going back and making it better. Yeah. But I think that's okay. fair. I want to point out one quick signal here. We won't discuss this. I'm going to use my personal privilege just to <laughs> share this really quickly. Um, we talked about a lot of different inclusion needs today, from gender to race to policy to uh, indigenous status. But in many ways, most of them ladder up to a thing that everyone covets, but not everyone will get to experience, because very much to what Niaja was talking about, and that's social mobility. Whether you're in the developing world trying to get or trying to get a piece of the American dream, or you're watching us from Europe and you just want to make sure your kids have access to the same benefits of the state that you did, social mobility is a really critical concern. And as much as we like to tell ourselves that people who are talented will move ahead, we find out that people who are from less socially advantaged classes are 32% less likely to become managers than people from higher social uh, classes. Uh, class is in fact a really important part of DEI, but it's very rarely addressed, uh, despite the fact that it can be as social, as strong a social determinant as race or disability. Now, Natalie Runyon writes here for Thomson Reuters Institute, the companies need to start uh, taking this question of class seriously if they are to move the needle on inclusion. We can't dance around it. It's something that needs to be addressed. And of course, part of that comes from this sense of social capital as being just as important as financial capital. Do people have the right mentors, as Dr. Takeda Tinker was getting at? Do they have, uh, you know, as we were talking about in the um, incarceration uh, uh, signal, do they have access to the right services or even the right, do we understand their mindsets? And so I'm going to leave this one to marinate with everybody because I think it is really valuable to understand uh, that, that class and social mobility plays a really vital role in here. And we cannot just ask this, we cannot approach the intersectionality and the whole person thinking that's required to make this big impact without thinking a little bit about the way that money plays here. So with that, I think we should move to wrap-ups. Portia, I'll start with you here. Um, what are the big takeaways uh, for employees who might be watching today? What's maybe something, you know, in a tweet-length statement, what's something that an employee might want to take away from this best practice and try to bring into their own uh, work community? Yeah, um, a tweet, let's see. <laughs> um, I would say just, I think, sounds a little corny, but just be authentic to yourself because a lot of equity does come down to the individual experience. So I think definitely one, obviously, I think a lot of people are now being more intentional about the companies they choose. So I think that's already being done. Yeah. But I think just, um, you know, use your voice. Um, you know, advocate as much as you can for yourself. Um, and I really think um, also build community within just your employee, your fellow employees, right? And um, try to build that um, kind of group. If you feel like maybe the overarching yeah. um, leadership might not be as like, you know, down to earth. Yeah. yeah, I think try to build your communities and really speak up for yourself because only the only person understands your, you know, individual experience and journey at a specific company is yourself, right? So unless you let those needs be heard, they won't be heard. So I think just speak up and be authentic. I think that's great. Um, Davian, uh, one of our C-suite whisperers, what should, our, <laughs> what should people up on very, very high floors of, of midtown Manhattan skyscrapers uh, think from today's briefing? Yeah, no, I mean, the words that, that have resonated uh, throughout the conversation, I mean, we talked about holistic, mm -hmm. holistic approach, um, a 360 approach. I mean, to plug our own model, we talk about a diversity operating system, sure. and I think that stems or, or really um, builds upon the conversation we had. It's not just about optics or what you're saying, um, but it's not also not just about how you're thinking about your employees in a vacuum, and that's one big component of it, but how are you really embedded 
embedding equity across um, those policies and practices, and then that seeding or feeding into how your employees feel, how they show up, the work that they do, and so forth. So it all has to come together. Love it. All right. And uh, Dr. Takeda Tinker, who is, uh, has earned her place in many more <laughs> briefings, mm -hmm. I'm curious, what's your sort of expert takeaway? What is a theme that you've seen in all of these signals that you think is really important for people to consider as they try to become more impactful, more nuanced in the ways in which equity can improve the workplace? Well, first of all, I wanted to say that Sparks and Henny certainly does not shy away from today's toughest topics and questions. Wow, I'm very impressed uh, with the expertise and even more so that it's a real practical lens on how to implement. You have to start somewhere and change is hard for people. It's very hard on organizations. And so to adapt to where we all need to be as leaders and as organizations is going to take time. You start somewhere. And I love that circle metaphor that was shared earlier. You just keep going around and continually improving and making it better incrementally and, and engaging your employees at every level and you will get there. So it's um, been a lot of fun and I appreciate the time. Of course, oh my God, it was wonderful to have you on. So yes, a big thank you to Becky Carrera, Davion and Portia, and of course our, our friends in the audience who spoke up as well. Thank you for joining us. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your thoughts on the subject, uh, your uh, hot takes, and perhaps even some signals you want us to check out. Uh, if you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today's briefing and to make all of our work impactful, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to give you a demo of it. It gives us incredible quantitative and qualitative insights based on that fabulous global data uh, to help uh, us drive change for our clients. Um, as, uh, as you may know, we uh, just launched a report at reports.sparksandhoney.com on uncertainty. There's definitely some overlaps here. We'd love you to check that out. And finally, you can sign up to join us live in studio. We'd love to have you come in. It adds a lot to this experience. So until tomorrow, when we're going to talk about entertainment and beauty the following day, so much cool stuff this week. Consider yourselves 